to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things disaster-related, emergency response, business continuity, crisis management, resiliency, and anything that's associated to those topics. I'd like to remind everybody that in November 13th to 16th, I will be in Manila, Philippines for the 25th anniversary of the International Emergency Management Society Conference, TEAMS. And uh, if any of our global listeners out there are going to be attending, please feel free, hunt me down, and uh, maybe we can get your, your comments and thoughts on uh, you know, uh, the topics uh, presented at the conference or in emergency management overall, and uh, we'll get you on the air. And uh, if there's a certain subject you want the show to talk about, please go to the Voice America website. There's a page for Preparing for the Unexpected. And there's a button, uh, I think, halfway down the page underneath the, uh, the picture that says send host a, a message. And uh, I get all of those messages and you know, I respond to all of them. And uh, we do get uh, some of those people and subjects on the show. So please feel free to do so. Now, many of you may remember that for quite a while I was promoting the Continuity and Resilience uh, Today conference that was held in Toronto in May. And I have been speaking with many of the presenters that were at the conference and uh, you know, provided some fantastic information. And I'm fortunate today to have one of those speakers with me. And their topic was Evolving Global Threats and Corporate Resilience. And I'd like to welcome to the show, Mr. Paul Doucette. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Alex. And uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on the show. I, I attended your session and I found it really interesting. And uh, I think I, I mentioned to you uh, via email or, or somewhere that uh, they should have given you twice the amount of time because there was so much good information in there. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I did. I remember when I was presenting, I ran a bit short on time at the end and I had to rush through <laughs> some of the final slides there, didn't I? I was only at 45 minutes and I probably uh, kind of projected I could get through them faster than I actually could. <laughs> well, fingers crossed <laughs> we can happens. do that today and get through. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, can you take a minute or two and talk about yourself, like uh, where you came from, what you do, you know, um, your experiences? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been uh, now ten years with uh, with my company in the security services space. So I'm currently the director for Canada. So my role here is basically to support all of our clients here in Canada with all of their uh, different security programs. Uh, including assisting with some, you know, consulting and training uh, that we do for them, but also just uh, helping them to, as best they can, access and make the most of the, in, the services that they have through International SOS. So we support about 250 or so organizations around Canada, uh, including some of the biggest companies in the, in the country. Um, and through us, they have access to, you know, um, uh, constant monitoring of developments globally in the security space, um, any developments that may affect their security or, or disrupt travel globally. Um, they mm-hmm. also have access to actual on-the-ground support and assistance in, in a crisis that should anything go wrong. So 
Um, this kind of service is invaluable for companies that have a big international presence because without it, you'd just be flying solo without any of the kind of expert support that comes with a program like ours. So the, uh, my background prior to this role was in, uh, in both Asia Pacific and the Middle East. So mm-hmm. prior to this, I was in Singapore. I, I relocated here to Toronto from Singapore, uh, where I was for about a year and a half um, as a regional lead for all of our consulting and training. Uh, that we do there. And prior to that, I lived in Dubai for three years where um, I was directly engaged in a lot of the crisis response that we did during those years. So it was a particularly tumultuous time in the Middle East those years that I was there in 2013 to 16. So mm-hmm. we did, you know, mass evacuation scenarios during those years from from South Sudan on a couple of occasions when the civil war broke out, um, from Iraq when the Islamic State expanded through the north of the country, uh, in Libya, when civil conflict broke out, in Yemen, when the Saudi-led coalition launched its its war into uh, into Yemen um, and other areas as well. So, also Turkey after the coup attempt and things like that. So, that was where I, I suppose I cut my teeth a little bit in terms of crisis management and response, uh, having been able to be directly involved in quite a number of them. I spent quite a few okay. years in Asia Pacific before that too, in various kind of analytical roles and so on. So about 10 years of experience in the field at this stage. So I'm, I'm curious, I always like to ask this uh, of my guests, how did you get into this area? You know, I, I find a lot, you know, people yeah. that get into this area seem to come from a real myriad of uh, backgrounds. Sure. I mean, my background was, uh, yeah, I mean, I think everybody, sort of say everybody I work with has a very unique story uh, in their background. It's, uh, typical, it's an atypical industry and it's full of atypical people. Um, we've, uh, my, my particular story, I mean, I, I kind of grew up in Eastern Canada. I left straight after university, uh, determined to sort of see as much of the world as I possibly could and spent, uh, well over a year just sort of backpacking around through Asia, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East and, um, lived for short periods of time in, in Korea and Taiwan teaching and things like that and finally did a master's degree in Singapore from which I got hired into, um, Control Risk, which is our partner company, and started working within the analyst stream and came up through that. Um, so that's, I mean, in a very small nutshell, that's my background. Huh. It's always interesting yeah. to hear how people get, get involved with this. So yeah. let, let's jump into your, your, your presentation. Um, can you tell us about the threats, some of the threats that are out there, especially, you, um, you and you kind of touched on it already with uh, the Middle East. Sure, yeah. I mean, the, at a global level, I think the threats are uh, obviously too numerous to go into in too much detail, but overall, I think the, the world order is at a, a relatively stable point compared to most other times in history. But that said, with um, uh, that, you know, speaking from the perspective of mid 2018, when certainly there's a lot happening, but nonetheless, uh, from a big picture historical perspective, we're nonetheless at a fairly stable point. That said, every region has its own. Uh, instability and pockets of instability spread around. I mean, we look at this region in the uh, North and South America region, we can see political unrest breaking out in Haiti last week where, where once again International SOS was there evacuating a few dozen people from the country to get them out of harm's way. With simmering crises in Nicaragua and a political crisis in Brazil, Venezuela has fallen into an extremely difficult uh, security and political crisis as well. Um, around Europe, the conflict in eastern Ukraine continues to simmer on. The scattered conflicts and insurgencies all over Africa. 
in the Middle East, the wars in Iraq and, and Yemen, and Syria in particular continue to rage. Uh, if we continue east on the map, and the, the conflict in Afghanistan has, has never ended and has, shows no signs of abating, while in East Asia, the Korean Peninsula has long been a source of tension with ebbs and flows and spikes and troughs. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, it may be at a trough now, but it's nonetheless the kind of thing that could, that, that could change very quickly. Um, and then, of course, around Southeast Asia, where there's a plethora of issues with terrorist groups being active in different countries, probably most notably um, in the deep southwestern corner of the Philippines, where several Islamic state-linked groups hold territory and pose a pretty serious challenge to the security environment in a lot of towns and cities around uh, Mindanao and the, the nearby archipelagos there. So overall, I mean, that, you know, and then at the same time, um, natural disasters have seemed to have become even more prevalent and um, dramatic over the past few years. Last year in particular, where the storms and earthquakes that were witnessed around Mexico and the Caribbean and the eastern, southeastern United States um, uh, tell that tale quite clearly. So I've got a couple of questions for you on that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sure. Um, one on the natural disasters. Are the is the yeah. number of natural disasters, in your opinion, increasing, or is it because of the the way the world is so interconnected these days? We're just more aware of it. Yeah, that is a, an excellent question. Um, I would say that. Uh, well, to be perfectly honest, uh, Alex, I don't think I'm in a, in a position to say. Definitely that is on the increase. What we have seen Mm. is in the past five years a greater number of incredibly impactful natural disasters than we saw in previous periods. Mm -hmm. Whether that is legitimately uh, an upward trend, and there are some some pretty credible meteorologists out there who argue that the, the effect of climate change has warmed oceans to a point where these storms are able to increase in intensity to levels that you know, with a regularity at certain levels that we haven't seen previously, and that that effect may or may not be real. It's really not for me to say. But the mm-hmm. um, uh, that combined with increased population growth, population centered around littoral areas, so coastal areas, um, the death tolls rise as populations rise. They go in conjunction. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of things to say that perhaps they are getting worse. Um, certainly, some of the most dramatic natural disasters that anyone has ever recorded have happened in the past 15 years or so. Uh, most notably, by far the largest was the, the earthquake tsunami in Japan in 2011, in northeastern Japan, but also the major earthquake tsunami near the north coast of Aceh, uh, Sumatra, near Aceh in Indonesia mm-hmm. that spread across the Indian Ocean. I mean, these, these were some of the most dramatic uh, natural disasters uh, in recorded history, and they've happened quite recently. So... Um, Difficult to say, um, but no doubt it's it's certainly not decreasing. I think that's probably fair to say. And um, it's true. It does it does seem like every time you turn on the news each night, there's something natural disaster um, focused that has occurred somewhere. You know, and it didn't seem to be like that as you said, like 15 years ago. It didn't seem like that. So yeah, I agree. The the other item is uh, terrorism because. There, there, I've seen in sure. some papers, you know, if, if in news, you know, not just papers, you know, I do see look at things online. <laughs> um, the articles where, you know, terrorism, you know, there's politicians. If you're against a a, a particular person or philosophy, you're an instant terrorism. So what's you know what's your definition of what a terrorist and, and terrorism is? 
to, to make that clear for people? Uh, sure. I mean, I think the um, the internationally recognized definition of terrorism is as simple as acts of violence by non-state groups with a political motive in mind. So there's a lot of acts of violence that happen that mm-hmm. feel like terrorism. They may not meet the definition of terrorism because that word includes in it um, the political or ideological motivation. Um, but from a, a threat analysis perspective, so from within what I do, we don't necessarily need an event to be terrorism for it to be relevant. So there's a lot of acts of violence that probably aren't, they don't meet the definition, but mm-hmm. they're nonetheless just as dramatic and damaging. So um, a good example is what happened here in Toronto just a few months ago, uh, where um, you know someone involved with a deep net, deep web uh, group called Incels apparently was responsible for a ramming attack that used a tactic, mm-hmm. um, basically an emulation of a tactic that was used by uh, Islamist extremist terrorist groups in Europe, primarily, and uh, used that same tactic, but did it for a completely different motivation. Not really looking for any political or ideological uh, gain, necessarily. It was more of a mm-hmm. personal or very small community-focused issue. Uh, that was uh, responsible for that motivation, apparently. But nonetheless, the impact is the same. So we'll focus these kind of acts of, uh, of violence in terms of the way we look at things as, as not limited to what's definable as terrorism and what isn't. Uh, I'm going to pose the same question to you uh, about the natural disasters. Do you think you know the terrorist and terrorism acts are on the increase as well? And could that be attributed to social media? In your thoughts and from what you've seen. Uh, okay. So to the first uh, first part first, I'll, I'll answer the first part first. I think it will be probably depends on what time frame you're looking at, but if we say the past three or four years, I would say terrorism may actually be on a slight decrease, or I'd be tentatively mm. optimistic that it's on a slight decrease right now, primarily because of the Islamic State's loss of territory in Iraq and Syria, and their... Mm reduced ability to uh, promote their ideology compared to what it was during the peak of their caliphate that they declared in in the Iraq and Syria region there. So back when they had dramatically taken over swaths of land and were able to have a fully functioning state propaganda network that pushed information out through slick propaganda campaigns and magazines globally, they were able to really inspire a lot of disaffected people around the world to take up, um, to, to use violence on their behalf in support of their ideology these days, um, with that loss of territory, I would say there's some some room for optimism there. At the same time, the groups far from disappeared, um, and its ideological influence is, is certainly not dropped to zero. Um, so there's still a lot of groups out there that will be inspired by them and by their uh, by the, the ideologies they're pushing out. And at the same time, plenty of other groups are active in many parts of the world, from Egypt to the Philippines to, to Latin America even, um, and certainly in different parts of Africa. So um, is social media responsible is a very interesting question. So one of the main trends that we saw, especially with the Islamic State in particular, was that it wasn't that they promoted the use of social media in any given way, but what they did promote was a style of terrorist attack that enhanced the media profile 
of the attack in its aftermath. So mm. rather than simply kill an enemy or an infidel somewhere, it's do an act of violence in the most public, high-profile location that you can possibly do it in. Um, that way it gets the greatest degree of media attention and has the greatest sort of quote-unquote inspirational uh, impact on other followers and, and potential followers. Interesting. I didn't know that last part. That, that's an interesting piece to hear. Uh, we've come to the end of our first segment, believe it or not. Uh, we're talking with Paul Doucette about evolving global threats and corporate resilience, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Paul Doucette, a presenter from the CRT conference in Toronto on his topic, Evolving Global Threats and Corporate Resilience. Paul, in our, in our first segment, we talked about the threats. Now, what about the impacts you know, and, and the cost of getting it wrong. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the complexity of the global security environment is, is really a challenge to organizations that operate across borders because not only does it potentially affect a company and its staff who are traveling around the world directly where they're 
potentially exposed to these kind of issues that may happen to them in various parts of the world, but also indirectly because it creates a global environment in which, uh, you know, the access to information is so important, which communication plans are so important and things like that, so that, you know, we have to be able to be on top of this um, all the time, be able to actively mitigate any threats that are reasonably foreseeable. And a lot of, uh, especially in the West, legal systems are uh, now having this extraterritorial legislation that can hold organizations responsible under duty of care laws to uh, have taken all the right steps to be able to prevent reasonably foreseeable risks to their traveling staff. This forces companies to need to take these threats extremely seriously, not only from the normal moral perspective, but also or ethical perspective, but also from the from a legal perspective, reputational risk perspective, and so on. So, I think it has myriad consequences. That's interesting that there's laws in place that you know. Is it just for staff that's traveling, or staff in general? Staff in general, absolutely. Staff in general. So it doesn't have to be that they're overseas. Uh, reasonably foreseeable risks apply to domestic. Uh, staff, international staff, for, for sure. Yeah, some of the more uh, impactful cases have been domestic, but it certainly impl- applies to companies who are operating overseas as well. Hmm. Interesting. So you, in your presentation, you had a, uh, a good example here of the Kurdistan re- region, excuse me, in August 2014 of a case study of evacuations. Can you kind of give us a, a highlight on that? Because I thought this was an interesting yeah, slide. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it was... Um, so the, 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 the background of this is that it's um, just a look at what poor decision-making, quote-unquote poor, or sort of evacuating in a situation where it may not have been necessary. Uh, and when you're taking that action due to perhaps poor, a poor level of preparation or out of a position of, of panic rather than a position of, uh, of resilience and robustness and, and preparedness. Um, the example is from 2014 in Iraq, so in the northernmost region of Iraq. Uh, it's a semi-autonomous region controlled by uh, an ethnically Kurdish government, so most commonly known as the Iraqi Kurdistan region. So in 2014, when the Islamic State itself in northern Iraq, but south of the Kurdistan region, took over a large swath of the country, um, it soon thereafter, within about a, uh, six weeks or so, began to, probably partly out of hubris, uh, think it could also move into the Kurdistan region and start to take on the, the Peshmerga forces, uh, backed by the U.S. military that were there. Now, there was a huge difference in what it did in northern Iraq compared to what it was going to try to do in the northern Kurdistan region of Iraq, primarily because the Iraqi army was so poorly structured and incentivized at the time that they largely absconded um, from their duties uh, in Mosul and other major cities across northern Iraq, which was what allowed the Islamic State to very quickly move in, in some cases almost completely unchallenged, and take over control of those urban centers. Their victory was dramatic and amazing and impressive globally. Afterwards, when they thought they could push that even further and go into the Kurdistan region, they met a very different kind of enemy or foe there. So. No one believed that the, the, Persh, the Peshmerga forces or the U.S. military would be, would be a pushover the way that the Iraqi army was at the time. They were a very skilled and battle-hardened fighting force that had the mm-hmm. backing of the U.S. military and U.S. intelligence. And every observer globally agreed that there was no chance of the Islamic State Army being able to, to make real advances. Now, they made enough of an advance to make people panic and jump. 
And because of that, we received a lot of requests for evacuation. Now, when people make that decision, we certainly consult with them on what the risks are, and we provide our advice, but we don't make these decisions on their behalf. When our clients want to move, we move them, and that's it. We respond to their requests. So mm-hmm. we ended up doing about 300 evacuations out of the Kurdistan region at the time. Despite advising clients there was no need to do so, the U.S. State Department advising that there was no need to do so, almost all major foreign embassies advising there was no need to evacuate. Um, there was a bit of a, a panic on the ground that caused sort of suspension of normal business operations in a lot of cases for a temporary period of time, but it wasn't really a need to leave. And as everyone predicted, the Peshmerga and the U.S. forces quickly pushed the Islamic State back uh, to Mosul behind uh, basically an advanced line of control at that stage. Um, and they never really tried again in any serious way to enter the Kurdistan region after that. Uh, the, the case study is really just meant to show that having access to that kind of professional advice and information and, and actually leveraging it in the right way can save you uh, an evacuation in a situation where it may not have been necessary because doing that kind of evacuation when it isn't necessary, especially when it isn't necessary, can have a lot of really negative consequences. So what are some of those consequences? Because I know you you have some detail um, uh, about this situation of some of the uh, consequent, the direct consequences and indirect consequences of what uh, resulted of, you know, organizations and you know communities. I'm sure, you know, saying evacuate, evacuate when there wasn't a need to. So can you kind of yeah, go through yeah. some of those for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I so di- directly, of course, for an organization, the direct consequences are, are first of all financial. It's not cheap to evacuate, especially in a situation like that in the Kurdistan region where charter aircraft was required because of overbooking of commercial flights and there not being that many commercial flights on a regular basis to begin with. I mean, some organizations on average might spend easily $70,000 to $100,000 just for the initial uh, charter extraction of their people. Oh, so this is, this is what needs to be... So, sorry, I sorry, it, it just got me thinking. So when we're talking charter yep. flights, we're not talking a plane that holds multiple, you know, the first... 200 people that show up. People were chartering flights. You know, if I work for ABC Inc., ABC Inc. is chartering a plane. Is that so in right? some cases, absolutely, that's right, yeah. I mean, the way that we operate for our clients, for the best interest of our clients, is that we will get an aircraft that can fit um, multiple people. And so, for example, we will organize the aircraft on behalf of all of our clients in a given location. It may have 200 seats. Um, client A has 20. Client B has 30. Client uh, C has okay. 2. Etc. And we'll we'll arrange it so that they can share the cost essentially and use the same if if it's possible to do so where the environment allows it. Uh, we'll often go that route and end up um, explaining to each client the situation and that ultimately, depending on how many people get on each flight, that cost will be reduced to a per person basis as as far as it can be reduced. Ah, uh, I see. Okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt there. It just all of a sudden it's no, not at all. Wait a minute, because that, that it doesn't get explained <laughs> on the news like that. It just gets explained a charter yeah, yeah. flight. So I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean then? <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> no, but in some cases, you're absolutely right that in some cases, an organization will do it for itself. Um, again, like an, an organization maybe without access to someone like an international SOS who just wants to go independently organize their own charter craft, they will certainly pay a lot more for that if they only have 15 people and they can only get a 100-seat aircraft. They'll be very comfortable on the flight, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it will certainly cost a lot more. Um, 
But then, I mean, I guess the, the follow-on point from that in terms of the financial impact is the, um, it's not just that initial flight. You have to think about what is the international safe haven you're going to reach um, and where can these people realistically stay. If you go to the nearest place, maybe you're in Istanbul or Dubai or something, are they people just going to stay in a hotel there indefinitely? For how long? Is there going to be onward flights, further hotels? Are they all going to go all the way to their hometowns to wait this out? When do they come back? Mm-hmm. You have a large population somewhere, or even just a reasonable sized population, this can be this can add up very, very quickly. And not all insurance company uh, policies will cover this. So it's important to understand it in detail what it might actually cost. Um, and then again, as well, I mean, in terms of financial impacts, you will lose the revenue that you might have otherwise generated during your uh, if you had continued operations. Uh, opportunities can be missed when production pauses. So uh, a lot of lost business in that sense. And then indirectly, what does your workforce and your employee, uh, your, your, all your employees think about management's decision-making if they force you to leave somewhere when there wasn't really a need? And some people among your employees and country may not have even wanted to leave and they were told they had to. It, it can lead to a real crisis of morale and a lot of attrition. Mm-hmm. And additionally... Um, for the company as a whole, remembering that in this day and age, everything gets reported in the media, everything gets reported in social media, every individual with a cell phone is a potential blogger or journalist. If a company does something that anybody feels is worthy of calling out online as a scandal in any way, they will get called out for that because that's what generates site hits, page hits, and that's how media make money. So with that in mind, you have to be wary that whatever big move any well-known company might make will have trickle effects on the reputation. It could be that they are seen as a responsible company doing the right thing, but if the evacuation isn't necessary, it can be the very opposite impact on the reputation. And then finally, uh, contractual issues. So in the Kurdistan region, but not all, certainly not limited to there in many parts of the world, uh, when uh, an evacuation like this is done, often the country that is in crisis feels abandoned by the foreign company that was happy to make money while they were there, but then as soon as things got hairy, they they cut and run. And sometimes mm-hmm. it can lead to cancellation of contracts. It can lead to sometimes specific individuals who may have been directors of the company not being given visas to return um, after things settle down and the company wants to go back and resume its operations. That may not be allowed or may not be possible anymore because of the... Uh, the, the threat to contracts, essentially, and the, the goodwill that's lost by having done that. So there's a myriad of consequences, and those are some of the big ones. So it's really a fine line, because it, it, you, know, you could potentially be doing the right thing, but you can still upset your employees and your, the, the country you're residing in because you're moving your workforce, even though you're, you're, you yourself are thinking you're doing the right thing. And then if you stay, you can still be doing perceived as doing the wrong thing because employees do want to leave, but you're not saying go. <laughs> so it's a really, yeah, it must be really difficult. Yeah, it can be a double-edged sword like that. Yeah. Any, any advice on how to, you know, make the call from what you've seen? Yeah. I think being proactive is, is the main advice that I would give in that sense. And be proactive about risk management. Um, a lot of these problems can be managed if they're managed well in advance. So understanding very well the risk environment, investing early in things like um, planning and tools and things that you need to have in place to be able to manage things effectively, including taking seriously the job of um, 
uh, early decision-making matrices or trees that can help you to say, look, based on these are the various scenarios where things could get bad in this place that we're operating, scenario A is this happens, scenario B is this happens, scenario C is this happens. In each of those cases, what do we do about that? How do we respond as an organization? How do we how do we detect it as well at an early stage so that we have early sight of what may be about to happen, can take the right proactive measures we need to keep our people safe. And very importantly within that is communicate clearly to everyone involved that this is the organization's stance on how we're going to manage potential security crises. If this happens, we will do this and so on and so forth. That way, people aren't taken by surprise. They aren't taken aback. They know the rules of the game. They know why management may decide what it will decide, and there will be much less risk of um, backlash from the employees and so on, and also from the government contractual side, much less risk of that being seen as um, you know, a slight to the government if things are clearly understood in, in advance. So that would be my main point of advice on that front. So you'd set up, um, uh, I guess, like benchmarks. If we reach here, this is what we're going to do, you know, but you have to communicate communicate that to everyone. And for an international company, would you really be communicating that to the government beforehand or would you communicate that, you know, when you actually get to that benchmark to keep the goodwill, you know? Yeah, I think in a lot of cases where there's, uh, I'm sorry, Alex? Uh, so, uh, how would you handle that? You know, you so your your host country doesn't get angry at you. You know, and they're they're never taken by surprise. So, would you communicate with them ahead of time? Uh, yeah, I think there are there are cases where it would be appropriate to do so. I mean, different organizations operate internationally in different ways. Uh, there are some cases where, because of the scale of an investment a, a multinational corporation is making in a given country, there will naturally be an open line of uh, dialogue with the government, and having that open and honest dialogue is probably going to go some way towards preventing that kind of risk down the road, yeah. But it would be in specific cases. I wouldn't say every single case. I mean, if you have a tiny office with two people, it's probably not, you know, a requirement, but in certain cases, Mm -hmm. it, it will be a natural thing to do and helpful. Yeah, if you, you know, let's say you've got 500 employees just seeing a number, you know, and three quarters of them are, you know, from other countries. Yeah, you're going to, I guess, to your point, you're going to want to communicate that ahead of time. Hey, if we reach this, if, if we get to this point and, and something has occurred, this is our plan to do this, you know, so that, you right. know, to, as you said, you know, they're not taken by surprise and then all of a sudden have that feel of abandonment. You know, when yeah, going gets tough, you run away type thing, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Okay. We've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking with Paul Doucette, uh, Evolving Global Threats and Corporate Resilience, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Paul Doucette from the CRT Conference in Toronto and his presentation, Evolving Global Threats and Corporate Resilience. So in our last segment, Paul, um, we talked about uh, the impacts, you know, the cost of getting it wrong and things we need to look out for. So in our last segment here, let's look at the challenges, you know, and some solutions. And um, I, I guess it would be the corporate resilience part of it. So can you define uh, resilience and what do you mean when you say resilience? Yeah, I think it's one of those words that's, um it lends itself to a lot of different interpretations depending on what discipline you're involved in. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think um, in my presentation, I highlighted two definitions that are, are quite relevant to the way that we approach it and how we help organizations to enhance it. So one definition is, uh, I'm just going to read it off my screen here. It's the ability of systems and people to effectively respond and adapt to changing circumstances and to develop the skills, capacities, behaviors, and actions to deal with adversity. So that's quite a mouthful. Uh, it's quite a long definition, but it's about being able to respond and adapt during adverse situations. And maybe a simpler version of the same thing is, is simply resilience defined as a process of adaptation before, during, and after an adverse event. So what is your perspective on, on resilience? You know, is it an IT system? Is it, you know, a community? You know, what, what do you perceive it to be? Well, resilience is, is more, uh, it's something that's inherent in, in almost every system that we, uh, that we engage with, IT certainly being one of them, uh, no doubt about that. The, it can be observed at lots of different levels. So if we think about the example that we've been talking about of a corporation with an overseas investment where they're sending travelers and expatriates to a destination in a country where, um, you know, they need to be concerned about security risks, medical risks, other environmental concerns, uh, corruption, and many other things that may be inherent in the environment they operate in. 
I think we can see many layers and talk about resilience in many layers. Certainly the IT systems is part of that, but we can look all the way down to the individual level as well. So right down to each given individual, how resilient are they? And we can look at their, their life circumstances, the level of training that they've had, and, and talk about their level of resilience in a lot of different ways. And the level above that would be the community that they're a part of, and that could be the community of, uh, of their expatriate friend network that they have, or it could be the actual population within which they reside and, um, and the network that they have there. Beyond that, it can, or we could actually look at the uh, community as the city itself or the whole town or, or the actual mm-hmm. community where they live. And above that, the organizational level. So what resources can they draw upon from their employers, uh, from the wider network that the organization has, and, and how resilient is that, and how much does it enhance an individual or a community's resilience? Above that, we can look at the local city or regional government and, um, and how well-resourced they are to be able to respond to various things. And then at the even highest level, the regional or global uh, governance structures that will come that will bring to bear. So, I mean, this, this comes into play all the time where, take an example like in the Philippines a few years back where Typhoon Haiyan struck the island of, uh, uh, or the Tacloban area in the, the, the eastern part of the Philippines where it took the international community was activated to come provide assistance and support to help them recover and adapt from the aftermath of that storm. Um, but the storm was so devastating to the environment that it took a full 72 hours for that aid to actually reach the people who are affected and who are in dire straits on the ground in the hurricane in the typhoon's aftermath. So um, how resilient that global system is is also an important question to know and to understand the answer to. I think from the perspective of, of advising uh, our clients on how to enhance resilience or strengthen resilience, uh, we focus on the two areas where, they, where we really can control it as private organizations, the individual level and the organizational level. So there's lots of things that we can do to better train people, better prepare people to be able to manage different adverse scenarios. And at the organizational mm-hmm. level, there's plenty that we can do to enhance preparedness, enhance resilience, enhance the robustness of response plans, and so on and so forth. So really, if you know, if we don't focus on um, the resilience of people, that's not going to help some of the other layers. You know, if you don't have resilient people, you, you can't really have a resilient community or you can't have a, a resilient organization because they're all made up of people. Would that be correct? I'm general. Yeah. So would that be kind of a uh, correct statement? It's a generalization, sure, but it's absolutely true. I mean, it's uh, you can have a, an excellent community, but if someone's prone to panic at <laughs> the slightest uh, incident happening, then they're not a resilient individual. The community will provide some support, but it's not a – you wouldn't say that you're at a solution or that you're at an acceptable level of resilience if that's the case. Right. Well, uh, as, as you have it, a, uh, a small um, ounce of prevention you know, is, is worth more than the cure. You know, so dealing with one person, you know, uh, getting the individuals taken care of will help, you know, build all the other uh, resilience areas, the communities, the organizations, etc. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is a mantra that um, that my company really kind of lives by, which is that prevention is always the best cure. Uh, it's always much greater than cure. Investing mm-hmm. early, as, a, as, the point, as is the point I made earlier, to have the right programs and systems and resilient um, programs like training programs and the rest of it in place uh, goes a very long way to um, not needing 
to ever get yourself into that situation where you're scrambling, where you're you know trying to quickly find a cure. And if you are finding yourself in that situation, um, you know, as a generalization, I almost guarantee uh, it will cost a lot more, both in terms of money and indirect impacts and consequences, than it would have to put the right preventative measures in place to enhance the preparedness. Mm-hmm. So um, let's move on to a security crisis and incident management, you know, uh, internal and external challenges. You know, can you highlight sure. some of those you know, for us? Yeah, I mean, we, so as I mentioned at the beginning, I mean, where a lot of the crises that we've, we've managed have been very complex from civil conflicts and things like this, but also major natural disasters like we dealt with last year in the Caribbean. I mean, externally, the constraints and challenges that we will face in trying to manage the situation appropriately, some of the biggest ones um, are the lack of reliable intelligence and the sensationalized media reporting, the rampant social media rumors and, and panic statements that will be coming out that will uh, force people to take actions they may not have otherwise taken because they don't know what's true and what's not. A lot of people think that the um, advent of social media enhances our ability to get information quickly. What it actually does is it creates a tremendous amount of noise that can drown out the real facts. So having mm-hmm. good access to some source of reliable, corroborated situational awareness and information is a critical part of being able to respond appropriately, no matter what the case is. So other external challenges also are that mobile communications are almost always affected, partly because of lines being uh, overwhelmed and sometimes because of, um, uh, because of governments shutting down different uh, platforms or, or all communication networks uh, as part of their response and to try to limit the spread of rumors and panic. Um, in many cases, we'll also deal with things like language barriers or transportation being unavailable or impossible. Um, we think, in many cases, many people will think that their embassies will help them overseas. Often what we've found from our experience is that a lot of embassies from a lot of countries and in a lot of places quickly get overwhelmed, quickly get overstrained, and really are not a source of quick help uh, when we might think we could get it and when we need it. Um, also, demand for resources of every sort, especially transportation, uh, even things like food and water in, in particularly severe cases, will spike tremendously. Um, one thing that many people forget is that despite living in almost entirely cashless societies, in a crisis overseas, in many, many cases, cash is king. And mm-hmm. getting access to the right reasons that you need requires hard cash. And that's something that we always recommend people have on hand to be able to access the resources they need when they're in high demand, when other people may not have um, the ability to guarantee payment. If you have cash, that will always get you what you need. Uh, now, internally, within organizations, there's just as many constraints and challenges. Often, it's impossible to, to contact your employees to know what their status is. That can be very challenging. Getting, as I mentioned, like related to the, um, uh, the issues of media reporting and sensationalism and panic and rumors, the ability to access proper situational awareness can often will feel at the headquarters level like we're operating in the dark because if you can't get the right awareness of what's really happening on the ground, it can be very difficult to make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Another major thing that all of the companies deal with internally is that we look at what other companies from our own industry or our own country are doing, and we tend to follow them, sometimes blindly, but it's impossible to avoid, avoid this. And we've seen it time and time again. Um, it's impossible to avoid because we always will think that that other company that we compete with or that is also from Canada 
they're doing this, it must be for good reason. What if they know something we don't? We have to take that same action as them. So this is a natural human thing that comes up all the time in any major crisis like this. Um, there's all a lot of other things. Managing internal stakeholders is a huge challenge, and the administrative side of crisis management is a fairly mundane point, but it's really important because you're going to avoid legal trouble later um, if you, you know, properly record everything that you're doing, reasons for every step of the way. This kind of thing can really avoid any possible legal issues that may arise, you know, in the in the aftermath and the postmortem phase. So interesting, you mentioned following other companies. You know, if we follow other companies, we could be, uh, they could be doing it all wrong. And, you know, we may be going against our best uh, intentions and our good judgment and then accidentally doing it wrong ourselves. That's an interesting. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know. Yeah, 100%. So let's move. It's something that we've seen all the time. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, yeah. people realize that, you know, and listen to this and realize that you don't always have to follow blindly. You know, sometimes your own good judgment is your, your best indicator. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at solutions. You know, sure. what would you, what kind of solutions would you recommend organizations to enhance their resilience? Um, I think there's a lot of, a lot of things organizations can do, especially when they have a, a destination where they operate that's really a, a concern for them. I think they can, first of all, uh, factor in things like the known challenges, the things that I just said. So we think about the constraints that we almost, that we know from experience, whether any given organization already has the experience or not, they can learn from the lessons that other people got, you know, and, and make the right choices. So we, we've done uh, surveys, we've commissioned surveys to try to understand that what the client organizations that we work with, uh, what the challenges they faced were, what the most significant things that they face worth so that we can design some programs that help companies to overcome that. Um, and it's not only us. I mean, there's been also a lot of other organizations such as the, the U.S. State Department and other organizations that have done similar surveys and they've come up with the same answers. And those answers are, number one, the biggest challenge is getting access to verified information about the situation. That is mm-hmm. the biggest challenge organizations face. So having a solution to that, first of all, is absolutely essential. Everything else follows from that. So everything else follows from truly understanding the situation, having access to information that you know is verified, and being able to sift through the noise in the media is the critical component at the beginning. The second thing of equal importance, and which also comes out on all the surveys on this topic that we've ever done and other organizations have ever done, is communication. So having the right types of communication, devices and tools, the right systems in place and protocols in place is equally critical. You can't influence what's happening in a third country if you're not able to communicate with the people who are there. Some things that can help get around this are things like satellite telephones. They use satellites mm-hmm. to get around the normal networks people have. Some other things are having trained protocols for what to do and where everyone should go in the event that communications are shut off. We have those protocols and plans in place. People on the ground can at least meet face-to-face and decide together as a group how best to manage the outage. Uh, if there are plans in place that they know they can rely on and they have their actions already, they don't necessarily need to communicate. They can take the correct actions that headquarters will want them to be taking. So the next thing that follows from that is to have the right planning, contingency planning. How do mm-hmm. we evacuate? Where do we go? What assets do we use? If we're domestically relocating, where do we go? What is the main transportation methods that we need to be using? And if one's unavailable, what's plan B and what's plan C? 
So there's those things. And the next thing that comes from that is, of course, as alluded to earlier, is that training for individual resilience. So it's all well and good to be able to get good information, communicate, and have plans, but if the people on the ground are panicking and they don't know how to how to behave or they're unable to compose themselves, and that's very uh, <laughs> challenging as well, it needs to be managed, right? So having the right training for people who are assigned overseas is critically important. The last thing is a lesson learned from many, many crises, which is that almost invariably every case where people are looking to get out of harm's way and to leave a location because of safety concerns almost always begins with a period of standing fast, sheltering in place, um, often for a period of 48, 72 hours before the right option opens up for them to be able to move safely. So for that scenario, having a stockpile of essential provi- uh, provisions and water and lanterns and batteries and food and things like this and everything else um, goes a hugely long way to keeping people safe because if the threat is outside, you're not going to want to be going out with the masses trying to access uh, food and water, having it already and being able to stand fast in a safe location until you have the right opportunity to evacuate in a responsible and safe uh, way uh, is also a critical component. So with all of that in place, uh, I think it will go a very long way towards enhancing resilience for any organization. And that's a perfect spot to end because we only have 30 seconds left. So, so Paul, <laughs> I'd like to thank you so much for your uh, presentation. Uh, there, there is so much information in here. And maybe at some point, if you know, there's things you think of, uh, please reach out. I'd love to have you back on some of this stuff because um, it, it's a different perspective than just here's my office and what I need to do. So thank you very much for speaking with us and joining us today. Uh, there's a lot of great information. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And just a reminder to all our listeners, I'll be in Manila November 13th to 16th this year uh, for the Teams Conference. And in the meantime, everybody, stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.